Good morning, Saints. Good to see you again for the 34th time this year. And I believe some of you have probably been here 34 times. And uh, I just want to commend you for your Bible study this year. Uh, you've been a, a really faithful group uh, who have dug in every Thursday morning to study the Bible. And it's just a pleasure to be your teacher during those times. And others who come to, to uh, substitute tell me the same thing. Uh, you're really attentive bunch, even at 6.30 in the morning. And uh, we have some, some good things planned for next year I want to talk about in just a little bit. But I know that we are all very grateful for the team that supports us every Thursday morning. We've got folks back here in the kitchen that fix our breakfast for us, get up at 4 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning to get in here and get everything ready for us. We appreciate them, all the sound people, people up front, people on the piano, uh, people who sing to us and keep perfect pitch when they're leading us on Holy, Holy, Holy. Uh, all these people who uh, help arrange things, Lon, you and all your team, uh, we really appreciate and thank you for all you do to make Amen possible for us. Let's give them a hand. <clears throat> a good number of you here teach regularly in different venues, and you know how, uh, how blessed it is to come to wherever you're teaching and you've got a team that's taking care of all the logistics for you so that you really can put your mind on, on the teaching. And that's what it's like for me here, and I, I really appreciate it on Thursday mornings. Guys, <clears throat> we have been studying some very, very important documents. Uh, those documents are chapters in Matthew's Gospel that are the sermons that Jesus gave that Matthew recorded. Jesus, of course, gave much more than is in the Bible, and John and others tell us that the whole world wouldn't have room to fill all the books that could be written about Jesus, uh, but we have a selected uh, amount of material given to us that Jesus uh, uh, gave us. And in Matthew, we've been studying these five key sermons. Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. That was the first one that Matthew gave us that we looked at, which shows us what a real Christian is, what kind of character that Christian has. And it's very distinctive. It's very different from the natural fallen human being. So we've seen the necessity for being converted and being changed into a new man by faith in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we got to chapter 10, we saw the, mission on, uh, the, uh, the uh, sermon on mission. And uh, there we saw that we don't just receive, but we go out and proclaim and serve in the name of Jesus Christ. So when you are converted, when you come to Him, you are sent out. In chapter 13, we had a number of parables about the kingdom. And the first parable kind of says it all, the parable of the four soils. And how important it is that the soil of our hearts be fertile soil without weeds and so on in it. So that when the word of God lands in there, uh, it, bears, it grows and bears fruit. And we saw the nature of the kingdom in, in uh, seven parables in Matthew 13. Then we came to Matthew 18, and we saw that Jesus was teaching us about the nature of Christian community, that it is a functional family where we care for each other, we pursue each other, we hold each other accountable, we forgive each other 70 times 7, and we confront each other when we've sinned against each other or sinned against the Lord. It's a unique community, and uh, it can only be accomplished through uh, men who've experienced regeneration by the Holy Spirit. It's a new community. Jesus teaches us about that in Matthew 18. And then we came to Matthew 24 and 25, and we saw there that Christian people are people who know that this uh, history is moving toward conclusion. 
a grand conclusion. When the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, shall return in all of His glory, personally, visibly, bodily, and claim His throne over all of the visible and invisible universe. And we've seen how it is incumbent upon us, therefore, to live in light of this second coming. And the way that we live, of course, makes us very different from those who think there is no life after this life and who seek to grab for all the gusto in this life. Those were the five sermons that Jesus preached. Then, of course, you know, uh, he went to the cross on Calvary, uh, then uh, and he died and was buried. And on the third day, on Sunday morning, uh, he was raised from the grave. And many witnesses saw him. And in chapter 28 of Matthew, if you'll turn there on page uh, 1888, on Matthew 28, uh, we see the account of the resurrection and even the attempts by some of the leaders in Jerusalem to make up stories about the resurrection that were wrong. He was seen by many, many people, and he told, through the angels, he told his disciples to meet him in Galilee. There's a reason for this. We'll look at it in just a moment. And here in Galilee, Jesus makes an appearance. We believe there were about 10 appearances of Jesus after his resurrection, before his ascension. Uh, Before he ascended... Each of the Gospels tell us that Jesus told His disciples to go into all the world, to preach the Gospel everywhere. It was in His last words in every account, including Acts' account. You remember, before Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, He said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost ends of the earth. So he explained that after he ascended, the Spirit would come and they would be thrust out into the world to make disciples. So we're going to look at one of those versions of his famous last words before he ascended into heaven, which in a sense summarizes, as we shall see, everything that he's been saying in these five sermons in Matthew. Let's take a look at it. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, let's look at these first two uh, verses. And notice this, that whatever He calls us to do, whatever service He bids us perform, we will serve out of our weakness. You say, why do you say that? Well, here's why. He makes a point uh, in this text to use the word 11. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Why does he make a point? Well, because clearly they ain't 12 anymore. And there's one of them that has betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. It just is a way of saying they're not 12 anymore, they're 11. They've been diminished by their own cowardice and by their own betrayal of Jesus Christ. And the church always has a limp 
And disciples and disciplers always have a limp. We always are diminished in some way because of our own disobedience and weakness. And here you have it displayed right up from the very beginning. And not only that, but you'll notice that some doubted. It says, when they saw him, they worshipped him. That's wonderful. Just like Thomas, when he saw him, worshipped him, my Lord and my God. But then we're told, but some doubted. Now, we know the disciples struggled with doubt. Thomas struggled with doubt. Why did he struggle? Thomas said he struggled because he wasn't there when Jesus showed up the first time, and he just couldn't believe it until he saw it with his own eyes. Or he said, until I put my hand in his scars, in his wounds, I'm not going to believe. And so Jesus comes back and Thomas falls on his knees. My Lord, my God. He sees and believes. Now, we can kind of get that. We struggle with doubt. But when you finally see it, it's inevitable. It's undeniable. You fall down on your knees and you worship the Lord. Right? But what if you're looking at the inevitable, the undeniable, and you're seeing it with your own eyes and you still doubt? (laughs) Now, that's being a real knucklehead, I'd say, wouldn't you? And that's exactly the way human nature is. Seeing is not believing. Believing is indeed seeing. You have to hear the gospel. You have to know and understand. It has to be plausible to you. You need enough evidence to see why. Yes, you know what? This resurrection really happened. But even when you get it all, I could give you all the reasons in the world. If I had an airtight case, it wouldn't convert you. You'd still be doubting. Why? Because of the wicked human heart. That's why. Because we don't have the ability to believe unless God changes our hearts. Here you have this amazing statement showing our profound weakness. Now, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians. And you will find 2 Corinthians right after 1 Corinthians. (laughs) Uh, That would be page 2228. 2228. And here in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul describes... Our weakness. And he says in verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. A treasure in jars of clay. If you know what first century people do, they didn't put their treasures in jars of clay. They put their treasures in, in something that was indestructible, like a very strong wooden box with a lock on it. Uh, But here Paul says we have the treasure of the gospel and it's in jars of clay, something that's breakable like ourselves. We're all, as they say, crack pots. But look what he says as to why this is done this way. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted but not crushed and so on. He says, it's to do this, to show that the all-surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's the same logic he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he's talking about why he always proclaims the cross and why he doesn't do it with eloquence or with the so-called wisdom of his age, the the, the, the same sort of eloquence the philosophers had. He said, I don't do that because I don't want you to put your your, your hope in me. I want you to put your hope in the cross. And so it's always a simple display of the work of God on the, uh, in His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That's what's placarded before the world so that they'll put their trust and be impressed with Christ 
and not the orator. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 12 and you'll see a similar sort of statement where the, the apostle is discussing his own ailment here. He says, so to keep me, verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So you see, Paul says, I've had these uh, phenomenal revelations. I've been taken up to the third heaven. I've been, and, and of course, in his case, I've, I've been the organ of God's revelation, a perfect revelation of his word. But, to, but I had this thorn given me from Satan. It was clearly something that Satan did to Paul. And he says it was to keep him from being conceited because of his spiritual authority. And look what he says in verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So Paul went to the Lord and made a personal prayer request, interceding for himself three times, no doubt with tears, pleading with God to deliver him. And gentlemen, his prayer was not answered in the way that Paul prayed it. You've done this, haven't you? You prayed for somebody not to die. You prayed for your cancer to go away. You prayed for yourself to, to uh, uh, not get fired. You pray, for, you pray for all kinds of things that happen anyway. That doesn't mean that God didn't answer your prayer. He just didn't answer it in the way you asked it. Look how God answered his prayer in, in verse uh, uh, 8. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says the apostle, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So when I finally realize that I'm not 12, I'm 11. When I realize that I'm, I'm not Billy Graham, I'm just Sandy. When you realize you're not this, but you're just this. When you embrace it, you embrace all your natural weaknesses. You're simply saying, now that I'm weak, I'm strong. Because I'm no longer depending upon myself. I'm depending upon Him. So when you go to work today, you need to be depending upon Him. Not your own brilliance, your own great relationships with people, your financial power. It's depending upon Him. So we are told here that we serve out of our weakness. It was the 11. Now notice in verse 16 that the 11 disciples went to the Galilee. Why? Well, you see it right there. Jesus had directed them to do so. And the question is, why did Jesus direct them to go to Galilee? Because very soon he's going to go down to Bethany. And there on the Mount of Olives he's going to ascend. That's a long trip. Why would he take them all the way up to Galilee to make this, make this short sermon right here. Here's why. Galilee is Galilee of the Gentiles. Remember, Galilee was on the border of the Gentile land, and it had a lot of Gentile traffic through it. And that was the reason that Galilee was held in low esteem by the people from Judea down the south where the capital city Jerusalem was. Galilee of the Gentiles. And Jesus is going to teach them something very important about the Gentiles, and we'll pick up on that. Now let's look at verse 18. Here we have what is known as the, the beginning of the Great Commission. And let's not leave off this verse, because here we are told that we serve by His authority. We serve by Jesus' authority. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
So, folks, obviously, whatever he's getting ready to say is very important. And he's reminding us of his authority. Now, in Luke 6, 46, there's a verse there that says, when Jesus said to them, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Do, what I, do not do what I say. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? In John 14, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. So what he's saying is, if you recognize my authority, I will recognize you. It'll be recognizable. Because if you put yourself under my authority, your life is going to change. You're going to be living your life differently from someone who doesn't put their life under my authority. Why do you call me Lord Jesus? And you don't treat me as your Lord. You treat me as an advisor, as a professor. And you're perfectly happy with a C-. minus. No, if you call me Lord master of your life, then you should be obeying my commandments and doing what I say. And of course, here he's reminding us of something that Paul, of course, celebrates in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says that Jesus has been exalted above all dominion, all power, and all authority, and every name that can be given in heaven or on earth. He's over all. That's how powerful, that's how great his lordship is. And Jesus is reminding us of this. All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Who gave it to him? The Father has given all things over to his Son. In John chapter 5, we're told clearly, all rights of judgment have been given by the Father to the Son. It's all wrapped up in the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus says this because he's getting ready to give us the Great Commission, his great commandment, and we're not going to be inclined to do it. And that's the reason that he's giving us these strong, uh, pre- this strong prelude to what he's getting ready to say to remind us that you can tell who's put themselves under the authority of Jesus Christ. They're the people who obey what he said in verses 19 and 20. So whether we're involved in the Great Commission is simply indicative of whether we put ourselves under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at verses 19 and 20. First of all, We'll see in 19 and 20a that we serve him by making disciples. Go therefore and make disciples. So in our weakness, we come under his authority and his power. And when we do that, we are disciple makers. Now, many have pointed out that in this text 19 and 20, this quotation of Jesus there's really only one imperative verb. And that is the verb verb, make disciples. In the English translation, we, we translate go as an imperative, but it's actually a participle, just like baptizing and teaching. So you have three participles and one imperative verb. So when that happens... really almost in any language, certainly in Greek as well as English, uh, the emphasis then is on the imperative. The focus goes on the imperative of making disciples. Now, we don't want to diminish the word go. Uh, You could translate it as you go, make disciples. But that probably underestimates the power of go in what Jesus is saying. He's saying, while you're going, make disciples. Or make disciples as you go. And there's a sense in which, obviously, he's taking them to Galilee, to the land of the Gentiles. They're looking at world religions and all the ethnic groups. 
And he's saying, as you go into this world that I brought you up to to Galilee to show you, you make disciples out there. And then, of course, in other places, in the Gospels and in Acts, as we have mentioned, Jesus makes it quite clear. He's talking about the world. Not just the Jewish community. Not just the historic Old Testament ethnic core of the church with uh, ethnic Jews. He's now talking about all of the people. But he's saying to them, make disciples. Now, let's look for just a moment in Paul's writings about what a a disciple would look like. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. And this would be uh, on uh, page 2295. Colossians 1. And here you get a wonderful summary of what a disciple is. Paul describes his own ministry here. He's talking about how he teaches the Word of God and for what purpose. Look at verse 28. Him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There you have it. Everyone mature. That's the goal. The word mature is the word for perfect. Everyone perfect in Christ. How do, you, how do you get people to be perfect in Christ? He just said it. Warning and teaching. We evangelize to bring them in. We teach them to lift them up. We warn them to keep them away from danger. And we present them at the last day perfect in Christ. That's the goal of the Great Commission. That's what making a disciple is. It's someone who looks like Jesus Christ. A disciple is simply a follower. Turn back a few pages from Colossians into Ephesians. Go back two books in your Bible to Ephesians 4. And here you get another very grand summary of what this discipleship is all about. He says uh, in verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, here you have it again, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Look at verse 15. Who, who is the head into Christ. We grow up into Christ. And we do it how? Through the offices that are given here. We have apostles... That office has now ceased. We have the prophets. That office has ceased. But now we have evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And what do they do? They communicate the gospel by which we are brought into Christ through faith and then we're built up to look more and more like Him. And when you do that, you are a self-directed adult. You know, when I talk to uh, seniors in high school, I tell them, well, actually, sixth graders. When I talk to sixth graders, I say to them, we got six years to work a strategy with you to get you ready for the college and university campus so that you will be self-directed. 
in only six years. Now, you just think of the sixth graders you know. You've got six years to get them ready to be self-directed. And we have a game plan to get that done. I explained to them what that game plan is and how we need them to cooperate with that game plan. Now, what about you? What's your game plan? The game plan is for you to be self-directed so that you can teach yourself and teach others with whom you have influence. That's the reason we're in Amen Bible Study, so that we're self-directed and we're able to encourage others to be self-directed and to teach them. So this is what it means to be a disciple, following Jesus Christ, developing a self-directed lifestyle that honors Him and then able to make other disciples. Uh, once again, if you'll turn over in, in uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, you'll see a very important verse that many of you know by heart. This is page 2339. 2339. And here Paul is saying to his young son in the faith, Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 2 of chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see the multiple generations of passing down the faith from Paul to Timothy to many others to the faithful men who will teach others? There's five generations of teachers right there. That's the way it's supposed to work. So we make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. That's the game plan. And so he says, go therefore and make uh, disciples. Now, notice uh, three things about this disciple making. First of all, he doesn't say, uh, before we get to those, let me just say this about disciples. You'll notice here, he doesn't say, go therefore and make converts. Or go therefore and make members. Or go therefore and make attenders or go therefore and make donors, or go therefore and make patrons of the Christian religion. Go therefore and make disciples. Be sure you know what you're doing. You're not just recruiting donors. You're not just trying to fill seats. You're not just trying to get people to profess their faith or come forward and get baptized, although we'll get to that in a moment. That's not the end goal. What the end goal is is discipleship, which means, of course, you're talking about a long-term process. You're not just talking about a one-time encounter or a one-time profession of faith. You're talking about a lifestyle. That's what you're making, men with lifestyles. And that takes a lot of hard work, as we shall see. Now, the three things I want us to look at. First of all, notice that these disciples are to come from all ethnic groups. And, of course, the disciples still couldn't believe this until Pentecost Sunday. It was a few days later, a couple weeks later, when they finally realized what Jesus was talking about when all the nations were represented in Jerusalem and they were all speaking in their own tongues and where they clearly saw there's going to be more here than just ethnic Jews. So he's saying going to all the ethnic groups, all the nations. The word there is ethnoi, from which we get the word ethnic. And he's saying ethnic groups. And most missiologists who look at this text say that what Jesus must be talking about here are what we call ethno-linguistic groups. That is, their, their own particular cultures, and that culture has habits of different sorts, presuppositions, and its own language or dialect. There are about 16,000 of them in the world, and in about 6,000 of them, we have almost no Christian witness. 
In over 2,000 of them, there's zero witness. And in 4,000 of them, there's a very diminished Christian witness so that those people, that people group is really not getting the gospel. Jesus said, go into all the ethnic groups, all 16,000 of them. I don't know how many there were in his day, but that's how many there are in our day. I mean, if you take India alone, hundreds of languages and dialects that have to be reached and people that are sometimes hived off in very difficult places. More than half the world, gentlemen, is made up of the Chinese folk religions, the Muslim world, the Buddhist world, and the Hindu world. That's three and a half billion people. And there are many, many lost groups, ethnic groups, ethno-linguistic groups within those major religious blocks. So there's still an enormous amount of work to do. And of course, we've made progress in international mission, and it's not now just North Americans. We have a huge number of Korean missionaries. We have missionaries from all over the world. Uh, but there, there still is a need for particular types or, or for particular types of missionaries to work cross-culturally who are North Americans. And sometimes I think the evangelical church thinks, well, you know, we got the missionary job done now. Now we can just beam it in there by satellite. Notice he says, make disciples. You don't make disciples, as we're going to see, with satellites. You make disciples with people, people to people. Satellites help. Uh, Bible translation helps. And by the way, we've, we've got 6,900 languages in the world. And we've got about 2,000 languages that have no, uh, no translation of the Scriptures. I could give you the more detailed facts if you want them, but we've got an enormous job still to do. Jesus says go into all ethnic groups. And that means, of course, here locally, we are to be very aware of the ethnic groups that are here. And so when we have a, a, a huge portion, maybe 100,000 Hispanics come to Shelby County, then they're ours. They're, our eth- there's a, they're an ethnic group, and there are many, as you, those of you who, who work among the Hispanic groups, you know there are many micro groups there. I mean, people from Honduras are not the same as people from Cuba, that's for sure. Uh, and Mexico from Venezuela, that's for sure. They're all very different. They even have, some of them have a little bit different accents and so on. They rec- and they have different cultural assumptions. So when we take Memphis seriously, we take seriously every ethnic group that's here. And we are uh, vigorous about seeing that disciples are being made in every ethnic group. That takes strong cross-cultural missionary work. That was the bombshell that God dropped in their playground on that day of all nations, he said. But then notice that they are from all nations and they are brought into the church. They are discipled into the church because he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, folks, we here at Second support all kinds of parachurch organizations, and some of you are in those organizations. And believe me, we're very grateful for the partnership that we have in this city between churches that want to be missional and parachurches who have large amounts of expertise that local churches don't have. And it's a great partnership that we have. But let's remember something. Para-church means alongside the church. Why do we use the word para-church? Because if we're going to make disciples, they have to be discipled into the church. And here you have one of the sacraments that's mentioned, that they're baptized, they're initiated into the body of Jesus Christ. So yes, of course, the most important baptism is to be baptized into Christ. 
in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, that invisible, viable, vital union with Christ. We're baptized into Him. That's the most important baptism. But there's also a water baptism by which we are sacramentally brought into the church. And what we saw clearly in Matthew 18 is that part of your discipleship is learning how to do church. So if you only bring someone to a parachurch organization and there they're not in submission to the, the elders of your church, so there's no church discipline, there's no Matthew 18, no accountability for relationships, no church discipline, and there's no sacraments, no Lord's Supper, no baptism, uh, you haven't brought them into the church, you haven't fully discipled them. So when you're discipling, you always disciple into the church. Now you say, well, the church is a whole problem. That's one reason we have our parachurch organization, because the church wouldn't do what they're supposed to do. Gotcha. But guess what you are? A member of the church. So guess whose problem this is? Yours. And guess what the solution is? Fix the church. So go out there in your parachurch organizations, use your expertise, keep advising the church, and you get your little fanny into the church somewhere, and you make a difference in the local church. And if the church is so weak that we need non-church entities to help us, then do two things, please. Go out there and create the non-church entities and let's get the help the people need and then come back here in the church and change the church so the church becomes more mature in Christ because the church is the institute that Christ uh, inaugurated. You don't find, you don't find your or parachurch organization in the Bible anywhere. What you find is the church. And he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And he says, I will build my church. So let's get it straight. When people are discipled, they learn how to live in community. And that community that God has ordained is the church. And the church needs a lot of help. We're 11. We ain't 12. We're weak. We're limping. need a lot of help. But when you're helping the church, don't help her by holding her in contempt. Don't help her by trying to replace her with something else. Help her by entering in and joining the family and yes, you'll become part of the problem because the same thing you're going to notice about the church standing out here, you're going to get in it and make it one person worse than it was before. And so go ahead and get in it and then try to work with her and make her the family that she ought to be. And of course, those of you, most of you here have been working in the church hard for years and years and years and you know this isn't easy business. <laughs> this is not for sissies. And it's not for people who are just going to give up. It takes perseverance. And thank God his son persevered with us and still is. So baptizing them into the church, they're initiated into community. Now, I want you to notice something here, just as an aside, I won't charge anything extra for this one, but he says, I want, them, I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. He doesn't say, I want you to make disciples of all nations, creating separate ethnic groups for every individual church. So we have a black church, a red church, a yellow church, and a white church. And I want you to baptize them in there and be sure and get your colors all straight. He doesn't say that. What he's saying and what you see in the earlier church is that, and you see it in the church in Antioch, they didn't create different churches for different ethnic groups. They had one church. Something bad has happened over the 2,000 years. And one thing I'd suggest we start working on in the church where you are Start working on that problem. You say, how do I work on it? Matthew 28, make disciples of all ethnic groups. You don't go out like a salesperson and recruit people and offer them some 
benefits to come to your church. See if you can put up a bigger billboard than the Baptist down the street. No, you go make disciples of all ethnic groups. And then as you're working with them as disciples, you say, you know, part of your discipleship, big part of your discipleship is community. Would you like to join mine? So you go out and make disciples of all ethnic groups and you invite those ethnic groups to come into fellowship with you and your family, your family, your spiritual family, your nuclear family. And when you do that, here's what you're saying. I am not going to be a racist. I am not going to put the Jews over the Gentiles. I'm not going to put the Gentiles over the Jews. I'm not going to play favorites. I'm not going to tell my children which ethnic group they're supposed to marry. What I'm going to tell them is what the Bible says. They should be equally yoked to a believer. That's what I'm going to tell my children. And they're going to know that's all I care about. In fact, it would be a great delight to me if through marriage my family could express the ethnic diversity of the church of Jesus Christ for heaven's sakes. That's supposed to be an honor for our families to display that we are truly family and our sons marry their daughters. And when you look in the Old Testament, you'll find Moses saying, don't let your son, your daughters marry their sons. Why? They're unbelievers. When you come in as believers in the family, one thing you're saying is this is family. And our sons marry their daughters. Just like you're saying, my possessions are your possessions. And when you join this church, if you're poor, we're going to watch out for you. It's going to cost me something when you join this church. Because you're going to get in trouble. You're going to have needs. And I've got stuff. So it's going to cost me if you join this church. It's going to cost me if you join this church. Because now my life is open to you like family. That's what's being said here. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, if someone's baptized in the name of the Trinity, what else do you require to be your business partner, to be the object of your love and affection, and to share your children with their children? You tell me. What else do you require? You baptize them into the church and we become one. And we do not treat people differently because of any other man-made distinctions or external differences into the church. Now, thirdly, notice, we make disciples with His Word. He says here, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Notice He doesn't just say, teaching them all that I've commanded you. Please, notice that. He does not say, teaching them everything I said to you. He says, teach them to observe everything I said to you. Teach them to obey. How do you do that? Glad you asked. You teach the Word, and then you get involved life on life in relationships, checking each other out to see how we're doing with the Word. This is the reason, of course, that we encourage small groups here. Because we hear the Word here, and here's what I'm doing. I'm teaching you the things that He has commanded us. You get in your small group, you all are teaching each other to observe all the things that He commanded us. Because in the small group, you're saying, hey, how's it coming with you, brother? How do you handle that? How do you deal with that? How do you handle your conflicts? Uh, how do you handle your persecutions? All these things that we've studied. You get in small groups and you begin to teach each other to observe what He has commanded us. And what has He commanded us? What's He talking about here? 
the five sermons that we just studied. Teach the disciples to obey everything we've been talking about all year long. And so we encourage you in small groups, and next year we'll do the same. We'll encourage folks to get in life-on-life relationships. By the way, next year we're going to study First and Second Corinthians. If, if you're a man and in this room, which I think is every one of us, unless some of you are playing a bad trick on us, 1 Corinthians 13, as well as, uh, I mean, 1 Corinthians as well as 2 Corinthians has a lot of stuff for men. Uh, there's sex on about every other page to begin with. That'll, that'll cover a lot of sins that we've got to deal with. Uh, there's all kinds of disruptions in the church. There are heresies in the church. Uh, there are people who are suing each other in the church. All kinds of misbehavior, broken relationships. There are problems with uh, Christian liberty and how to make decision, ethical decisions. It's all in there. Great stuff for us next year. First Corinthians and then Second Corinthians as well. And here's something we'd like to encourage for next year, if you all would think about this. If we're to be making disciples, who are we to make disciples of? Anybody who will listen to us. <laughs> and we're going to ask you this coming year, we'll be sending you emails to remind you, to be thinking seriously about making disciples of other men. And be thinking and praying this very summer of someone you might bring with you next year and have them sit with you at your table. Now, if we have space problems, we'll have solutions for that. We'll have a TV uh, overflow over here in C310. But let's bring especially younger men whom we can influence. Some of you uh, bring your sons with you. Uh, some of you bring a younger uh, men that you're discipling with you. We have some very young guys here who are being discipled. We're grateful for that. Would you think about bringing with you someone uh, that you would like to influence for the gospel? Now, we will encourage you all to get into small groups. And also next year, what we're going to be encouraging everyone to do is to consider a mentoring relationship because we want to be discipling people, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. We want to help men actually massage 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians into their souls. So if you are willing to be asked to be a mentor, willing to be asked, notice you're not committing, you like that? Willing to be asked. There's a sign-up sheet on your tables. And what we'd like for you to do is just simply give us your name. Lon Magnus will be over there, and I think uh, Don Riley may be over here, uh, collecting those blue sheets. Would you please sign those? Let us know that you're willing to be asked to be a mentor. Now, at Second Presbyterian, let me say for those of you who are not at Second, uh, we are going to be encouraging actively our younger adult men to be here with us. And we're going to offer them mentors. And largely what we'd like to do from each of your churches, if you want to do that with your men, fine. And then when we match up the mentoring relationships, we'll try to do it within your church. So that older men from your church are mentoring the younger men from your church. And that way you can continue your mentoring relationship when you worship together on Sunday. So if you'll just give us your name and put your church by your name. And that way, we probably already have it, but just in case, let us know so we can match you up and you can disciple other men within your church. Furthermore, this next year, uh, we're going to ask some of our pastors who teach younger men to participate with me in the teaching. So about a third of the time, I'll be asking these men. That would be Todd Erickson, uh, Barton Kimbrough, and Mitchell Moore to participate in the teaching. And they'll seek to have some of their young men here. 
uh, with us in these mentoring relationships. So please take a look at that this morning. Let us know of your willingness to be asked. And that means if you're asked, you can always decide later on you don't have the time for it. Uh, and of course, Don Riley and Lon Magnus can decide not to ask you. That's a possibility also. Uh, and maybe there won't be a need for you, but we suspect that we will need uh, mentors from this group. Uh, we should be making disciples outside the church and inside the church, bringing those outside in and lifting those inside up to know more about Jesus Christ. How do we do this? We do it with the Word. And you'll say, he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And of course, it's the five sermons in Matthew. But it's the whole Word of God. In Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, you see how we're to be discipling our sons and daughters. And I encourage you, if you've got an, a, an adult son or a teenage son here in this city, bring him with you. Perhaps you would want to create a small group with four father and son uh, uh, team members in that group. Bring your sons. We're to be discipling our sons. And Moses says, remember when we studied Deuteronomy, your sons and your sons' sons. You got grandchildren? Then we're discipling them. How? With the Word of God. He says, put the Word of God on your refrigerator, on your doorpost. Put it everywhere. And talk about the Word when you walk along the way, when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night. Talk about it all the time. You're continual teachers. You're either a good teacher or a bad teacher. But you are the primary teacher for your sons and daughters. Primary teacher. So you want to be the best teacher that you can be. And so we always want to teach with the Word. Now, quickly, look with me at these concentric circles. Uh, those of you who know me well know I love circles, man. I love circles. And here you have what a disciple looks like. Let's just look at it. First of all, from Matthew 5 through 7, we see that we're first of all converted to Christ. Because there in that first sermon, uh, Jesus is showing us what a real convert looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, they, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are you when, when others persecute you on my behalf, and so on. That's what a real Christian looks like. And the, the two components of conversion are faith and repentance. So in discipling someone, we want to be sure that they get the character of God and the character of the Christian and trust in Jesus Christ and turn from their sins, faith and repentance. Secondly, in Matthew 24 and 25, we saw that we're to be devoted to worship. He's the glorious Son of Man. Bow down before Him. And He's coming back. Worship Him. Be ready for Him. Live in His presence. Live before His face. And uh, in worship, there's obviously public worship and private worship. So the disciple is one who learns how to worship. That's the reason he must come into the church. You've got to teach him how to worship the Lord through singing, through praying, through giving gifts and tribute to the King. That's called an offering. All the things that we do in worship, you must teach a disciple to do that. And do it by personal experience. Have him sit with you. Make it life on life. Thirdly, a disciple is committed to the family. And I don't mean they're the nuclear family. I mean the Christian family, the church. Matthew 18. And how does he do that? Well, he has relationships of caring and sharing. And he has accountability relationships. And why do I say that? Any functional family provides that. We have caring and sharing in our family. If someone in our family hurts... We all hurt. If someone is in need in our family, everybody's looking for how we can help. 
in, in our nuclear family. That's the way we operate. If someone's in need, no, they're not going to fall below the line, below the water line. Nobody's going to sink. We're going to lift them up. We all constantly try to encourage them. We share life with them. And then we hold each other accountable for our behavior. If someone in, in a healthy nuclear family gets out of line, they'll expect a phone call from a sibling. Hey, what's going on over there? I heard about this. What's the story? And you better answer. Why? Because you've got an accountability relationship in a healthy family. That's what a healthy spiritual family is made up of, relationships where there's serious accountability, Matthew 18. And then, of course, in Matthew 13, we realize that we must be growing in the faith. The Word of God must be planted in our hearts, and it must grow and bear fruit. And what does this involve? Well, first of all, it involves knowledge. I need to know about the Word. I need to know about Christ. I need to know the facts of the, perfect, the incarnation and the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the glorious return. I need to know those facts. I need to have knowledge. But on the other hand, there are lifestyle changes. I don't just study the Bible to become a better informed sinner. I study the Bible so that my life will be changed. And so when I'm committed or growing in the faith, I'm growing in my knowledge. I'm also growing in my lifestyle. And that's part of being a faithful disciple. And so if, if I'm being discipled or if I'm discipling someone else, I'm having these kinds of conversations. We're, we're growing in our knowledge of the Bible, the Word of God, and we're growing in our conformity to the truth of the Bible that's being revealed to us. And then lastly, we're engaged in ministry. And we saw that clearly in Matthew 10. And in ministry, first of all, you have a vision for how God might be pleased to use you. Secondly, you have an awareness of the needs of the world around you. That's the reason I mentioned something about the ethnic groups and people who don't have the Bible around the world. And we have people here in in Memphis who don't have a job. We're aware of these things. And then thirdly, we not only have a a vision or or awareness of God's uh, Word and an awareness of the environment around us, but we understand ourselves and what we bring to the table. We get to know ourselves and what spiritual gifts we have and what opportunities we have to share and to help others. You put that together and that becomes a vision for ministry. And then whatever that vision is, you also get trained and deployed into that ministry. So it's your responsibility once God gives you a vision for what He might have you do to serve Him to get the training you need. You're adult learners. So you're your own consultant, educational consultant. You are the one who looks up for where the resources are and you, you get the training that you need and then you are sure to be deployed, hopefully, within the church. The church deploys you. So you have a vision for ministry, you get trained for it, and you get deployed. Now there is, I believe, a disciple, a healthy disciple, a faithful disciple as described in Matthew's Gospel. Now lastly, Roman numeral 4, in verse 20b, we serve in His presence. And of course... You know the Scriptures. You know from our study in Deuteronomy a few years ago. You know from Exodus. Moses says, Whom shall I tell them is going with us? And God offers him an angel. And Moses says, God, that's not good enough. So then God repledges himself to go with these people, these sinful, rotten people. And Moses is saying, If you don't go with us, we have no hope. And throughout the Bible, the big promise of the covenant God makes with His people, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will walk with you and live with you, I will dwell with you. At the end in Revelation 21, when the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven, we hear Him say, now my dwelling place is with men, and I will live with them, and they with me. 
He is with us. And here what Jesus is saying is, this is the life of the covenant. Your making disciples is part of your covenant life. And I have told you in this covenant, I will be with you. And if you want to know how really to experience the intimacy of Jesus Christ, get into pouring your life into a lost person. Pour your life into someone who needs to be discipled and seek to bring them up in the faith and you will experience an awareness of the presence of God in your life. Lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. So gentlemen, this summarizes everything that we've learned uh, these past months together. And it's been a real pleasure to do it with you. And the point of it is, is this. Are you a faithful disciple? Is anybody discipling you? Do you have anybody in your life whom you respect, whom you want to learn from, and who is helping you learn Christ better? Have you put yourself in that situation where you've humbled yourself to be a real disciple and being discipled by other people? Secondly, do you know whom you're discipling? Can you put your finger on people? doesn't mean that you're holistically the only disciple they've ever had. No, I just mean, do you have some people where you are consciously pouring your life in to help them become more like Jesus Christ? This is what Jesus says is the kingdom agenda. It's discipleship. It's being made a follower of His through the help of the brothers, and it's helping others to be followers of His by pouring your life into theirs to teach them to observe everything that He has commanded. That's the big kingdom agenda. That's what we're to be about. And I'm just asking you, how's it going with you? And would you let us at Amen help you in any way that we can to be discipled and be disciples of others? So if this is an opportunity for you you'd like to capitalize on, please let us have your name and leave that with Lon and, and Don. Are you all covering both doors, Lon? Okay, so at either door, you can, you can hand them that blue slip and, and do that. Gentlemen, this summer, we've got some excellent Amen studies on the, those three uh, Thursday mornings, one per month. I know you'll enjoy those, and I am getting fired up about 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending your Son to be our chief discipler. And we would be more like Jesus, and we would help others to do the same. Please be with us as you promise and empower us to carry out the kingdom agenda with all of our hearts. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.